we were probably going to try to keep this within probably 30 a minutes. thirty minute range. Is sure. What we try to we're usually about a commuter's clock's ticking. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or thebourbonconcierge.com and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to NoseYourBourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. And they're off for another Give 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. Bringing to you the best stories from icons in the bourbon industry, it's Bourbon Pursuit. Now here are your hosts, Ryan and Kenny. Welcome back to another episode of the Bourbon Pursuit Podcast. My name is Kenny, your host, and I'm today also with my co-host, Ryan. How you doing today, man? Doing well, doing well. I just made the trip to Lawrenceburg. Really excited about this episode. Uh, Al and I have been talking. My grandfather worked here uh, for, for Seagram's and Four Roses, so really cool to catch up, you know, get the history behind... You know, my grandfather Earl is a maintenance man, and it's been cool to li- listen to those stories, so I appreciate that. But really excited about this episode. So, yeah, we are today sitting here with Al Young. For anybody that doesn't know Al Young, uh, first, shame on you, because everybody <laughs> should know Al. Al is the brand ambassador for Four Roses. He's also the local historian. You know, he doesn't know just all about Four Roses history. He knows a lot of history about just a lot of bourbons in general. Maybe not everything about the history, but he, he re- he's got that Four Roses part down pat, right? Let's say, let's say we got that. 
<laughs> and so you've been around in bourbon for a long time. So uh, I guess kind of give us your story, you know, how you got into bourbon, you know, bef- way before Four Roses. You know, let's talk about your history and your past and what led you to the point that you are right now. Well, when I got out of graduate school, I taught for a year, uh, English in high school, and realized that it wasn't really what I wanted to do. And I worked in public relations. We all kind of figure out that yeah. that when you first graduate <laughs> and you went to school for whatever major, and then you just don't do that ever again. Exactly. If I'd known what Garrison Keeler was getting away with, I would have tried that. <laughs> but basically, uh, I met a really lovely woman that I've been married to for almost 48 years now. And she said, you know, you can't be in public relations all your life. You've got to you've got to think about making some money. And I thought, well, okay, I guess I better. <laughs> so it somebody, helps. one of my things. friends in Louisville said, why don't you go out to Seagram's? They're hiring. And I thought, boy, that's, you know, that's work. I don't know if I can get away with that or not. So long story short, I went in uh, as a management trainee in 1967 and uh I was only going to get a couple of years experience mm-hmm. and it stuck. And I, of course, it didn't hurt that I married that pretty woman. And we had three children almost out of the bat. Two came quick and one waited 10 years to join us. <laughs> but the whole point was I went in with the likes of Obahaney and, and Ed Foote and uh, some of these other uh, folks that are legends in their own right now. And uh, Jim Rutledge was there as well. He said he gave me my first tour. And he may very well might have. Uh, he was uh, at Seagram's in December, and I came in June. The same was in December of 66, and I came in uh, June of 67. So I learned a little bit about everything <clears throat> throughout the company, and uh, that was where the quality ethics started to stick. And then in about 1982, uh, to round out my experience, they sent me to Four Roses, which at that time was called Old Prentice, out here in Lawrenceburg. And uh, when, I, when I came out here, Charlie Beam was the uh, plant manager for, the, for this particular plant. And I learned a lot of things from Charlie and a lot more from the people that worked for me. And uh, then I just kept staying on. And every time Seagram's closed down plants, I was lucky to be able to stay here except when they closed the Louisville plant, and that was in 83. And I spent seven years at the Lawrenceburg, Indiana plant before coming back here as a distillery manager. So I stayed here, and then they they kept offering payouts, and they kept getting rid of people. And for some reason, Jim, myself, and several others, we never got our number called. We all (laughs) had to stay here. I hope it was because we sort of had the work ethic and we knew what we were doing. And uh, so all of that background of teaching and all that important uh, elements uh, took a new path when we became uh, uh, part of the Seagram, uh, not Seagram, when Seagram shut down, when we became part of Karen in 2000. And I was still the distillery manager. And in about 2006, I decided that I wanted to retire. You're still here. You realize that, right? (laughs) I know. Okay. (laughs) So I went in and uh, told Terry Dino, who was the president of the company at that time, that I wanted to retire. And he says, no. (laughs) Not a chance. We'd like for you to be our brand ambassador. So I said, what's that? And he said, well, you could stay and write the history of Four Roses Bourbon into a book. 
You could answer emails. You could go out around the country and help Jim Rutledge promote Four Roses at that time. Then you can do charity tastings. And so I said, well, I better go home and think about this. <laughs> the, the best jobs are the ones that don't really have the title yet, and they're just going to yeah, throw you at the and, wolves, and right? And they're really trying to fabricate some kind of a job description. Yeah. So I went home and talked to my wife, and she looked me straight in the eye, and she said, are you ready to retire yet? <laughs> and I thought, no, I don't think so. So I said, no. And she said, well, you want to continue on as brand ambassador? Go ahead. So I have, and in addition to a lot of frequent flyer miles, yeah. a lot of tastings, and uh, a lot of uh, good interaction with people, uh, it's been quite a ride for almost eight years now. It, it's, it sounds like it. Yeah. So I guess talk a little bit more about um, some of those things that you do as the brand ambassador. So I guess what's, you know, a day is a really hard thing to kind of say. Let's let's give a, a two-week span, right? Because you're talking about you're doing a lot of flying, a lot of dinners, a lot of charity tasting. So I guess guess what are some of the, the highlights that you can kind of say of that position? Well, you know, I think that a brand ambassador is sort of like the old medieval, going back to the English phrases, uh, the old herald. It used to keep track of everybody and everything, you know, and after the battle was over, they'd go out and they'd see who was alive and who was dead <laughs> and keep track of them. And so in the last, I think it would probably be better to do maybe the last uh, few months rather than a couple of weeks, because my last couple of weeks have been pretty busy. I've flown to New York. Uh, I've, I've done some work there, came back home to help shovel snow. <laughs> and now I'm going back to New York tomorrow to spend a couple of days before flying down to New Orleans for a dinner on Thursday at Arnaud's Restaurant. Now, that's been a pretty big name dropper, but mm -hmm. that tells you the scope of what we're doing. Roughly. But basically, um, in this role, it's like taking care of all the archives that Four Roses has. That includes old bottles, old labels, uh, written matter, anything we have. Uh, encapsulating the trademarks and getting physical copies of them, going back to the dark age. Mm -hmm. um, then writing uh, email responses to people who want to know how we do what we do and when we do it. And I think I'm a little familiar with that. And having you around for, I think, celebrity dinners now, that's that's a regular occurrence, right? It, it, <laughs> I, I don't know what to do with that word, celebrity, <laughs> but, but I'm learning. I'm yeah. learning, but... The most important thing is to get the word out. And that was what it was originally, was to try to get the word out about Four Roses. Because when we started, we didn't even have an advertising budget when we started bringing it back. So what we had to do was depend on the charity of friends, do dinners, uh, do charity events, which we still do, and which I'm responsible for coordinating. And um, it's, it's working out very well. Good. Having a good product helps also. Yes, that's the most important thing. You've asked about me and my job, so I told you. But the whole thing goes back to the quality emphasis of what's available in Four Roses to now with 10 different bourbons, two mash bills, five yeasts. They're all on the website. You mm -hmm. all can go visit that anytime you want to. But to have those 10 after they're aged out and to become flexible, to use all 10 in the yellow label, four of them in the small batch, of course, only one in the single barrel. Now, now most distilleries, like, they won't give out their mash bills. They're kind of secretive or, like, their yeast. But on your website, I notice you kind of give out everything and all the information, which is kind of cool because you understand, like, what you're getting. Well, yes. 
Um, some of our critics say, why do you want to give out that much information? And my response is, if you had the proprietary yeast that we have, or if you had the water that we have right here in the Salt River, and the aging warehouses down at Cox's Creek to work with, then you could make whiskey like we do. <laughs> but since you don't, you can't. Right. Mm-hmm. So I guess, you know, going back to a little bit of your history, you know, is there something that led you into the bourbon industry? Or was it just like, I need a job, I need money, mm-hmm. and then is, is the bourbon boom is what kind of kept you around really a lot in these well, past few it, years? Yes, it has, in a way. I tell you, uh, here in Anderson County, where I finally bounced to after going to Indiana and being in the Louisville plant and so forth. It's an area that's rich in history. And uh, I, I met a guy that kind of hangs out over at Wild Turkey. Yeah, I think we... And, um, starts, with yeah. A, starts with a J, ends with an Emmy? Yeah, yeah okay. be. <laughs> uh, <coughs> and also a fellow by the name of Ernie Rippey. When I first came out here, uh, he's deceased now, but Ernie Rippey was the runner of the tra- uh, Lawrenceburg Transfer Lines. And his family had owned where Wild Turkey is now. And Ovahaney, uh, who had a profound sense of history, told me when I came out here, he said, if you like history, if Ernie Rippey ever comes by, you need to kind of go with him. I said, I have a job here. Over. I've got to run. He said, I don't care. You need to go with him if it's a little while, an hour or so. We'll watch things for you. And he said, uh, just go with him. So what I did was I went around in Anderson County, and he showed me the old foundations of old distilleries. He talked to me about some of the families that lived here and the things that they had done, and the history began to take over. In <coughs> uh, another way, uh, uh, Ernie's uh, niece, Olivia, you all know Olivia? She uh, used to work at Wild Turkey. She's a big uh, person on history. Olivia called me one day and she said, uh, Ernie's going to be speaking over at uh, the library, and I wonder if you could come by. So I went over there and uh, he he got up with folded notes and everything, and he said, I, I'm, I wanted to write some things before I die. After you get to be a certain age, you kind of think that's <laughs> start, inevitable. Start worrying about that one it's foot in the grave scenario. Yeah, what are yeah. you going to do when you die? So he said, uh, I wrote some things down here, and you can thank Al Young for this, because, well, if he hadn't got my interest renewed again, a lot of it would have been left. So he gave his speech, and I recorded everything, and I thought, this is what I want to do. I want to make sure that the stories get told. (coughs) In fact, Bill Samuels and I were, were coming back from the Bourbon Compromise here a couple of weeks ago, and we had a really good visit together because we'd known a lot of the same people in Louisville and and uh, uh, coming up, you know, on the Brownsboro Road area and everything. And finally, as we were bringing it to a close, I just looked at him and I said, Bill, who's going to be left to tell the stories? <laughs> you know, we need to make sure that all of these are caught. And we got a lot of them in the KET film called The Bourbon Tales. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, something I was really proud to be a part of because we got a chance to um, interview some of the bourbon icons in the industry and ask them those questions that, you know, they ordinarily wouldn't be confronted with and see what they come up with. It was good. Yeah, that was a great program. I, <coughs> I thought it was really neat because you had everybody in one room. It seemed like all the master distillers and everyone in one room kind of, you know, just 
going around answering each question. It was pretty cool. What other industry do you know where everybody can be mostly honest? Mostly exactly. honest, and you got to think when it's together in a room, yeah, with a camera and a microphone, and you're basically with your competitors, right? That's and, right. And that's everybody right. has, and that's one thing that we've always noticed when we're interviewing people. The this industry is unlike any other, with the uh, you know hospitality, with the the kindness and words, and saying pretty much everybody's grown up as good friends. Everybody struggled through the same struggles in the you know the the late '80s and all that kind of stuff, right? So everybody's kind of lived through that. <laughs> you know, Parker Beam was in the film, and he he made a really good comment, and I think it typifies all of us. He said. You know, uh, we all make pretty good products. I'm paraphrasing him, so I might not have the words exactly right. But he, he uh, said, we all think we make good products. But I've always thought mine was just a little bit better. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's good. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. So let's talk about, you know, your book and the history. Now, as some people don't know, um, you know, I guess... The great thing about bourbon is that everybody, we love to taste it. We love the variations between all the distilleries. And even if you're not a huge bourbon drinker, you can always still appreciate the history that has gone into everything in the industry, whether it's uh, different mash bills, whether it's uh, the different family lineages, whether it, it's brands that have been bought and sold and now there's different distilleries and all this and other all kind the of characters stuff. characters that kind of been. Exactly. It's an outstanding history. history. And so we'll talk about, you know, the piece of work that you worked on. And for anybody that doesn't know, uh, it's called Four Roses, The Return of a Whiskey Legend. It was released in 2010. Is that correct? Um, and actually, I looked at it for on Amazon today. If you actually try to go to Amazon and find it, you can actually get it still and at a very, very good price because there's actually a bunch of used copies out there now that people can kind of get. But I would say if you want it, definitely get it for your man cave. It's a, it's a great piece to kind of just sit there and look over, uh, especially when you got friends over and you can kind of get a deeper appreciation for it. Or woman cave, right? You know, let's not <laughs> let's not leave that out. But I guess talk to me a little bit about the process of making the book. Like when you are going through it, I guess what were some of the challenges you saw? Uh, because, you know, I've looked through it. I actually have a copy at home. And, you know, you have a lot of scanned documents and old advertisements and all this sort of thing. So I guess it must have just been years of archival and then figuring out, well, let's try to create a story around it, right? 
Well, you know, you have to flesh out a story and you have to figure out what's important and what's not. So basically what I did was I went uh, to the lady that ran the gift shop, who's now uh, in charge of gift shops at Cox's Creek as well as here. <clears throat> and I said to her, I said, if you get anybody that says they were a member of the Jones family that, that was responsible for trademarking that brand, let me know. So one afternoon I was getting ready to leave and, and I was already out in front in the car and she came running out the door and she said, I've got somebody in here that's a member of the Jones family. <laughs> so I went in and I, I, you always, you got a couple questions you can ask, but mm -hmm. you're kind of secret now that uh, kind of find out. And he answered the questions right. And he said, would you like to see some diary work that my relatives did about Four Roses? <laughs> You're like jackpot. <laughs> would, would you like to see the Confederate papers for Warner Jones, Colonel Warner Jones? And I didn't even hesitate. I said, well, yeah. <laughs> and so what developed there was a lifelong friendship with this fellow, uh, who is a, a pediatrician in Louisville. And it just kept going from there to there to other places until I had a pretty good working knowledge of the Jones family and their involvement in Four Roses Bourbon. And then to be fair to the story, it was necessary to tell things about the Seagram years. So I had to go back and revisit all of that that I knew about and, mm -hmm. and had to read a great number of books about that. And then, of course, I had to comb the archives and find out what I thought would just be the appropriate advertisements to go in the book. So I guess my wife would testify that I, I wrote a lot, drank a lot, <laughs> and and uh, reread a lot before I finally came to what I had at the end. In was fact, <clears throat> a good friend of mine who was the history chair at uh, Georgetown College, uh, I shared my manuscript with him and... When I went out there, it was a huge thing. It was really big. And uh, he said, after it was over, I, I, I did the thing that everybody falls into when you finish a term paper, when you finish a book, when you finish any long work, you say, what do you think? <laughs> and he said, it's great but nobody will read it <laughs> because it is too big. He says, I want you to take the manuscript, go back and think about it in terms of telling me a story like you would. So when I did, it all began to kind of pull together and that's what the final That's what you is. have now. Yes. So let's let's talk a little bit about some of the history that's in the book. So you know, I've I've read the book before. So I kind of want to give some of our our, our listeners uh, a reason to go and buy it. So let's give them some teasers. So let's let's talk a little bit about you know who who was Paul Jones Jr. and I guess where did the uh, the brand name of Four Roses you know that that mystic and romantic name of it you know really begin. Well, you know, everybody has a legend about their brand. It, it just goes without saying, unless you're you're naming it after a specific person that can be documented, everybody's got to have a little Gitas to go with it. So basically, uh, the Four Roses legend came about, we think, through Paul Jones Jr. It's probably fine-tuned by Irvin S. Cobb in the 1930s to make it more palatable. 
basically Paul Jones Jr. had first trademarked uh, the brand in 1888, and the story went that he fell in love with a Southern Belle and uh, offered her a proposal, and she said if she accepted, she would wear a corsage of four red roses to the ball. And so we think she did, and we think he named his whiskey after that event. So that legend is what we say, and that's what we're sticking with. <laughs> now, there are offshoots of that about the Victorian language of flowers and the fact that uh, Four Roses is a pretty heartfelt expression of love and and, uh, and devotion. Uh, whether that was part of that or not remains to be seen. I'm sure that Paul Jones knew about it. Uh, after Prohibition, and by the way, we did get sold, sold during Prohibition mm-hmm. for medicinal purposes only, of course. Uh, we became one of the best-known names in bourbon uh, in the United States. So after Prohibition was repealed, I believe there were a number, uh, I think I read somewhere where it's two out of every four drinks that were poured after Prohibition had Four Roses whiskey in it. I think one of the cool pictures, I think it's in the book, too, is where it's in Times Square, where you normally see, like, Coke or the NASDAQ feed, you had four roses back there. Yeah, that's pretty cool. We didn't Photoshop that in. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that sign did exist, and every once in a while. In fact, if I get some time uh, this week while I'm in New York, I'm going to go out and take a look at where that sign hung at one time. But it was lighted. It grew rose bushes up on both sides of the sign that said four roses. They blinked on and off and said a truly great whiskey. That's neat. So let's talk a little bit about Four Roses, I guess, leading up to Prohibition. You know, what was the state of the company at that time? Well, the state of the company was that at the very beginning, it probably was a rectified whiskey. Up until uh, the early 1900s and the Taft decision, that would have meant that you would have purchased uh, whiskeys from small producers and you would have mingled them together to suit your taste and aroma to try to get some consistency in it, if you were honorable. If you weren't, you got people's whiskey, and it could didn't have to be that old either. It could be new make, mm-hmm. and you put it in with some caramel and some shoe polish and some <laughs> other disgusting stuff. Give it that color to just whatever it is, yeah. <laughs> and you would attempt to hawk that out to the public. And so Taft got fed up with that, and we had to have a definition that eventually came out to be the standards of identity. So he wrote this decision that kind of said what whiskey was, what bourbon was. I mean, you could still pawn stuff off on people that wasn't aged whiskey, but it had to be clarified as to what it was. Mm -hmm. That was to try to save a lot of people grief. Mm -hmm. And maybe some rock gut stomachs. Right, or (laughs) death in some cases. So... uh, uh, we have a bottle in our collection from that, uh, from right after that period during Prohibition that's in the book, too. And the prescription's on the bottle, and it says, take two ounces in hot water. But it doesn't say how often. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess that's a good lead-up to during Prohibition. You know, in the book, it, it talks about, you know, the Frankfurt Distillery Company was actually purchased by the Joneses. And that was basically, they did that to get the license to be able to sell medicinal whiskey at that time. Now, do you see that as as a, as pretty much the, the saving grace of Four Roses at the time? Because a lot of companies just basically just washed up and were gone because of Prohibition. Yes, I do. And, and one of the other sides of that is, uh, you know, if you hadn't, if they hadn't done that, 
there's a chance that if they had any aged whiskey in their possession at all, they could they would have to sell it to the consolidation warehouses for usually pennies on the dollar. And they didn't want to do that. They wanted to keep living in the manner to which they had grown accustomed. So they didn't mind buying Frankfurt to get that license to sell the brand name Four Roses during Prohibition. So I guess before then, the Frankfurt Distilling Company and Four Roses, I mean, they were two separate entities, two separate, bur- or I guess whiskeys really at the time, right? So so that was really the, the marriage of the two. And then so at what point was the Frankfurt Distillery Company kind of uh, started to, I guess, move away from the picture and it, Four Roses really emerged as the, I don't want to say superior product, but it emerged as the product of choice between uh, that, that, that merger? Probably would have been after Prohibition, when the Paul Jones Company moved to Louisville and uh, made their uh, a business off of Dixie Highway, 18th Street, and built a distillery out there to make their own. Gotcha. So I guess then we'll talk about maybe in, into the more later years. So the <coughs> transition from the Joneses to Seagram's. So that was in the mid-70s, early 70s? Is that kind of Well, actually, it was a long time before that. 1941. 40s? Okay. 1941, Lawrence Laval Jones, who was the nephew of Paul Jones Jr., died. And nobody in the Jones family wanted to continue the Frankfurt distilleries under their care and supervision. So they sold it to Seagram's. And Seagram's... Uh, got about 20 million gallons of aged whiskey in the warehouses that they could use for their blends. Uh, Seagram's at that time was run by Sam Brockman, and Sam Brockman needed that aged whiskey to support his blends. So he thought the war was going to go on forever. Of course, it ended quickly in 1945. Mm -hmm. Not too quick for a lot of dead soldiers, unfortunately. But 1945, so he was stuck with all this bourbon, and began to make plans to, to uh, change Four Roses to a blend of whiskeys or a spirits blend, and then eventually ended up with still more bourbon left over and decided to go to export market with it. So I guess, what do you think was the, the big reasoning behind taking Four Roses from a, a straight, actually, even before then, they, the Seagram's bought Frankfurt for, I think it was like 40 or 42 million at the time, which was roughly maybe a good deal at the time, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and so he ended up turning the, the bourbon into a, a blended whiskey, and that's kind of what went to market. Well, the important thing is to remember that he didn't turn the bourbon into a blended whiskey, with no offense. Right. He changed the characteristics of the label and the trademark. <coughs> gotcha. So he was still making Four Roses bourbon but he was also selling it as a blended whiskey in the United States. But he was selling it as a bourbon overseas. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And so let's then move into some of the, I guess, Seagram's kind of got some of the financial trouble in the 70s and 80s because of the, the bourbon market maybe not doing so well. Can you kind of talk about how Four Roses was doing during that period? You know, quite frankly, Seagram's, I would not think, was in any way, shape, or form in financial trouble. Okay. They had, I don't know how many brands in their portfolios that included scotch and vodkas and gins and liqueurs, plus a lot of other interests 
throughout the world, real estate, uh, drug companies, oil companies, and so forth, to say they were in financial difficulty would be a misnomer. But understandable why you would say that. But the brown goods category was going down. Right. That's that's kind of what I, I mean, was saying. Yeah, at. yeah. That's no, what I was saying. 1960s, late 60s, that we had almost 9 million barrels of aged whiskey in Kentucky with no place to go with it. So we had a glut. Sure wish we had that now. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That's hindsight, right? Right. But uh, they treated the brown goods as a stepchild, again, while they were selling it overseas as an export item. So they were off to play with vodkas and gins and liqueurs and everything, everything that was trendy at that time. So then, then uh, now I guess Four Roses switched hands again. So let's talk about the current state of Four Roses, right? Well, so in 1971 with Seagram's, we formed a business partnership with the Karen Brewery in Japan. So we've been doing business with them a long time before Seagram's, by ownership of the Broppen family, was dissolved. Now you still see Seagram's on the labels. But the direct ownership of the Brobmans went out in 2000. Actually, 2002 was completely gotten rid of by them and as an entity. So <clears throat> what happened there was that when Kieran found out that we were for sale and we were one of the, their largest selling items in Japan, they went ahead and purchased everything, including the production facility, the warehouses, everything, even the trademark. So they wanted to keep that going overseas, in addition to trying to bring it back to a state of presence that it was in the early, late, actually late 1930s, early 40s in the United States. So Kieran bought it, I guess you could say, with, with I guess it eventually changed hands to them. And did they kind of look at this as, as a good way to kind of see that there's a, there's a huge export market, right? I mean, we're still seeing that today. And that was probably one of the, the key fact, you know, maybe the, the key factor of them looking at even purchasing the brand at that time. I think so. And in fact, that the, the Four Roses brand had been well established in Europe and in Japan uh, under Seagram ownership. So they were they were buying a known entity. They weren't buying a startup company. Right. So I guess uh, one of the last questions, because we're running towards the uh, the top here, we're running about 30, 35 minutes. So one of the, the <laughs> things I love in the book is, is and maybe it's just me and I don't know, I have a fetish for it or whatever, but, you know, old advertising, right? I mean, it's it's something and, you know, we kind of talked about it here today. It has it has an appeal to a lot of people to kind of see, you know, how things are advertised. And so without giving away too much, because I, I really want people to go out and, and take a look at the book and look at the pictures because it, it brings that nostalgia factor back. Do you have one that is your, your absolute favorite to say, like, if I could get this and frame it and keep <laughs> it forever, which is the one you would want to have? Well, you know, I have, and I have done that. And that was the Moonlight and Roses uh, advertisement that came out... Um, in about 1935, with the Southern Gentleman and the Southern Bell, uh, relating the Four Roses legend. To me, that just says it all. It's it's perfect. Yep. There have been a lot of other good ads, like Cake of Ice ad, that uh, touted the fact that they froze roses in a cake of ice <laughs> and melted on the way to the retailer. <laughs> so, I mean, there are lots of things like that. Uh, but to, to me, I think that influence 
right after the repeal of Prohibition with the Southern Bell and the Southern, Southern Gentleman is what I like to put on my wall. Awesome. Well, that's fantastic. Well, Al, thank you very much for your time You're today. You're very welcome. We definitely yeah. appreciate that you coming great. on and uh, telling us these great stories of, of bourbon lore, right? Right. So if you like the show, you like what you're listening, make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. Also, make sure you follow us at Twitter on Twitter at Bourbon Pursuit. Like us on Instagram as well at Bourbon Pursuit. Yeah, and any uh, suggestions, uh, feedback, comments, uh, we appreciate it. Al, thanks again. That was really great info. Uh, love the stories. So uh, hope you all enjoy it, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.